Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today I'm going to be reading uh, part one and part two of an article that I've been writing for the past couple of weeks, and it's called The Truth Can Be an Ad. Uh, it's going to be spicy for some people, and I think it's going to be deeply nourishing for other people. If you feel strongly, either way, send me an email. Uh, I probably won't respond, but I will read it because I want to know what you guys think about this topic because it's really alive for me right now. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with the things that I do, get on the newsletter, and if you want to help support this podcast so that I don't have to read ads about uh, why you should get IG1, uh, check out my courses. And if you've already gotten the courses, send it to a friend. You know, if it helped you, go help them. As always, I really appreciate y'all's attention. There's a lot going on in the world. It means a lot to me that you guys come and check this out. So without further ado, the truth can be an ad. Part one, the truth can be an ad. Caitlin's always nudging me to write poetry. One came through about a month ago and it's called the do less game. I think I need more more podcasts, more videos, more ideas, then I'll know what to do. But I'm bullshitting myself. The truth is, I know. I know that if I stopped and I got quiet, that I'd remember. And I don't want to. I don't want to face the shame, the guilt of another broken promise to myself to remember the story that I sealed as a curse on the face of my soul that I am broken, that hope is delusional, that God is nothing more than froth between synapses, and that my lot in life is immutable, that the world is corrupt, and that this is all fucked. I love you. Thank you. That's what I've learned to say to this part. After a few deep breaths and the remains of wet heart prints line my cheeks, I find that which I sought. I bend down to meet his eyes. They blaze with soul. His grin fills my bones with infinite optimism. Without words, I ask him, what would he like to do? And he laughs. I can't help but laugh too. How is it that I could ever forget this? Game. For 30 days, stop doing that one thing. One of the wild card rules that I play in my relationship with Caitlin is to assume that her advice for me is the universe speaking through her, AKA, do it. This works because she rarely tells me what I ought to do. However, when I shared this poem with her, she had a flicker of mad trickster energy flash across her face. I noticed and I pressed her until she shared her thoughts. Her thought, maybe this poem was from you and for you. Maybe you should stop doing your Dharma practice for a week and see what happens. The moment that I heard her speak that I got upset. The moment I felt myself get upset, I got more upset because I knew that she was right. I was a little pouty ball of angry energy because I knew that what she was saying was true and that I would have to give up for a week the thing that I love most. 
For 95% plus of the days that have spanned the last 12 years, I have spent at least an hour in the morning reading or writing in a way that feeds my soul. And she asked me to give it up. And so I did. By the third day, I was crying in my car, thinking about people who kill themselves. By the end of the fourth day, I wanted to quit my job, change careers, and possibly move. That night, Caitlin and I sheepishly laughed. Well, the experiment is working. Day five brought an epiphany. I kind of just stumbled into building a course. Don't worry, this is not a pitch. Like a kid playing with Legos, I spent maybe six or seven hours building something for fun. It wasn't until I was late in the afternoon and I noticed how good I felt and that I had been doing this all day in a flow state. I knew what I wanted to create. I saw it in my mind's eye. I ran into a bunch of problems as I was trying to make it and I figured them out. I built something and it worked, meaning you could buy it and you can navigate the website that it was on. The day before, I was the most emotionally frustrated that I had felt in years. I was ready to blow up my life. The next day, by accident, I stumbled into a seven hour flow state building something that I'm not even going to sell, but I made it for the joy of building something that works. Then on day seven of this experiment, I watched Alex Hormozzi's book launch event. For those who know, you know, and for those who don't, he's an entrepreneur who helps entrepreneurs and he's damn good. I watched him pitch us on his online course. He made it clear that it was going to cost $12,000. He said he'd give it to us for $5,000. And just real quick, the us that I'm talking about is 200,000 people on a webinar, which set the Guinness Book of a World Records for the most people on for that type of call. So 200,000 people are listening to this live. I felt myself thinking, fuck, that's a lot of money, but this is a good deal. And then he said that he would cut it down from 5,000 to 2,000. I was laughing out loud at this point. I'd happily pay 2,000 for everything that he was saying that he was going to offer. And then he said he was going to give it away for free. And I saw grown men crying. I saw the chat explode with gratitude and excitement. If you've ever seen Tony Robbins since COVID has started, he created this building that has thousands, I don't know if thousands, but hundreds and hundreds of um, uh, like plasma monitors behind him where people who are on Zoom calls, you can see their faces in the monitor. So there's this huge wall of faces behind Alex Hormozzi because he rented out the same venue or at least build the same structure. And I watched hundreds of people start crying. After I got off that call, I felt something stirring in me. There's an elephant in the room for millions of people, and the elephant is money. Most people don't believe that they can influence the game of money. Most people believe that money is corrupt, and they would rather try to overturn our global economic system then learn how to start a business. This got me thinking about my journey with my relationship with money and out came the rest of what this is about to be. The truth can be an ad. I came from a place that feels this. And when I wrote the word this, I linked to the video by Oliver Anthony, a rich man north of Richmond. 
My friend Chase, who was one of my best friends as a kid, he could have written this song. My brother Chris could have sung this song. Oliver actually looks a lot like my brother, and I found out that his real name is also Chris, which is interesting. This song came from where I came from. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. Toma housed 8,000 of us. There were two elementary schools, one middle school, and one high school. Every parent that I knew was either a soldier, a teacher, or a coach of some little league in our town. Money was a force of nature that no one influenced. Like moisture in the air, money was invisible until it was a storm. Sometimes it streamed down my mother's cheeks. One time it smashed dishes in the kitchen. One of the most important moments of my life happened in Barnes & Noble. I had just graduated college and I was reading the four-hour work week for the third time. It took me three reads to understand it took me 30 hours of study to realize what an entrepreneur was. Side note, it took me 32 years to realize that an entrepreneur was just a boring word for describing an artist who started trying. But more on that later. It still can bring tears to my eyes when I really think about it. How many people live in the story where they believe that they aren't allowed to make money? When I was 22, my brain literally could not compute that I was legally allowed to just start a company. I can make something and I can sell it and I can get paid to do it. I can't emphasize enough how almost like shameful it feels to really connect to the fact that that's how much I misunderstood the world. At the time when I was 22, I was wrapping burritos at Chipotle. I had just got a bachelor's of science in psychology and I was wearing an apron asking high schoolers that went to the high school that I had gone to if they knew that guacamole was extra. I was too naive to be embarrassed. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. I made a few hundred bucks a month and I got two free burritos a day. I was fucking happy. But on that day in Barnes & Noble, I realized for the first time something that Steve Jobs describes as, quote, life becomes so much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is that everything around you that you call life was made up by people who are no smarter than you. You can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people want to use, end quote. And that if you do this, people will give you money happily. It took me 12 more years from that day to realize that you can do this and be a good person. It took me 32 years to realize that the truth can be an ad. There is no law of nature that demands that a person be corrupt to make enough money to not have to worry about money. You can create something that is good, that helps people and charge for it. There's no limit to the amount of wealth that you can create in your lifetime. And if that doesn't make sense, go listen to the podcast before this one called the Infinite Game OS. The more wealth you create, the more you can help the world. And wealth is not just money. More on this in the last section. And if you don't believe that, you are an artist with a Fisher King wound. 
If you don't know what that means, go look it up. It's a cool myth. The Song of a Generation. If you haven't yet, go listen to Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond. It's having a cultural moment. It's gotten over 50-something million views from the time of this recording. I've seen people call it the song of a generation. And if you love this song, what will follow may trigger you. But if you get to the end of this and you don't feel satisfied, email me your thoughts and I'll read them. And if you aren't triggered, you can still feel free to email me. I won't respond to most of them, but I will read them all. In this song, I see a tragedy and a God wink. The tragedy is the worldview that this song feeds. It's a worldview that isn't true. If you're reading this, you live in a world where, quote, everything around you that you call life was made up by people who are no smarter than you. You can change it and you can influence it and you can build your own things that other people can use. You are an infinite player playing an infinite game when you remember. But millions of people in our culture do not believe this. They do not believe that they can influence life. They do not believe that they can build their own things that other people can use. They don't believe that they can make money. They don't believe that they can change their world. And maybe they're like how I used to be, that they literally cannot comprehend the thought. But that's not true for most of them. It's not true for most of us. Most of us can comprehend that this world is available for us to change it, but we bullshit ourselves. We blame capitalism. We say money isn't real, but also the root of all evil. We say that power corrupts. We use words like colonialism and sexism and racism and fascism to make it clear to others, do not challenge my story. This world wasn't made by people like me and I can't change it, I can't influence it, I can't build my own things that can help people. You can because of your privilege, shut up. If any of these stories allow you to believe that you can't change the world, you're bullshitting yourself. And this brings in the God wink. Oliver Anthony did what artists do. He felt something poured it into the form of his art and he shared it. And what followed is what is available to every artist. He got culture to notice. And when the culture notices, the mirage of our helplessness vanishes. Our brother Oliver has the opportunity to change his life so radically that to sing this song would feel like reliving a past life. With a few right choices, he could never have to worry about money again. But if he really believes the worldview at the heart of this song, he will not make the choices that would bring him financial wealth because finance, money, is the problem. He's free to choose, but the God wink stands just the same. I like to believe that his soul is offering his ego a joke. Yeah, I know you think it's all fucked. I know you think that there is nothing that can be done. I know it hurts, but since it doesn't matter and it's all fucked, why don't you just record, record this song, share it. And now his soul is giggling. Pretty interesting, huh? All these options you have now, all these people that your art has helped. Maybe the world isn't fucked. Maybe your art can change the world. Maybe that capitalist asshole 
Steve Jobs wasn't wrong. Dressing the Dharma artist's wound. As of the day of this writing, it has been two weeks since I started this experiment of not doing my daily Dharma practice. I'm happy to report that I did not quit my job and that I haven't lost my fucking mind. To the contrary, and probably not as a surprise to most of you, I stumbled into some life-refining insights. Number one, keep your word. Number two, tend the thread. And number three, the truth can be an ad. Number one and two are for another time. They are game changers and they deserve their own articles. This one is for number three. A Dharma artist will be called by their soul to eventually sell shit. Let me say that again. If you really accept your Dharma and you find yourself in situations where you have to sell either an idea or a product, and if you don't think you've already done this, you are bullshitting yourself. You will have to address your wounds with money. Each of us are going to have unique rot in our basement around money. Be careful how deeply you indulge your bitterness and resentment for people who sell and make money. Because to the degree that you feast on your mockery and judgment of those that sell, you add feet to the wall of humility that you are going to have to climb when it comes your time to sell your vision and your art. Or forever turn away from what your art could truly be because you are not willing to scale that wall. Whatever you do, it is an opportunity for you to show the world what can be done with wealth. You can change their stories, the stories that the 50 million people who are resonating with this song believe. I'll share my project. I have a dream of creating an online university for artists. I have a dream that I can put so much value into each course that people will cry when they learn about what it costs compared to what I'm giving them. Thanks for the inspiration, Alex. I dream that the food that I feed my children was paid for by helping artists turn their passions into vocations. I dream that the table that we eat our food on came from one of the artists that I helped start a company. I dream that when I drive through my city, I see new buildings made with soul because the artists where I live have ran businesses that have grown to the point where they can invest in creating actual structures. I want artists building buildings instead of people who are just making money to make money. I dream that when I get on social media, I see my friends sharing their art. I dare to dream that artists can build the future, and I want to help as many as possible to do that. The truth can be an ad if you build like an artist. Part two. Have you ever found an author or a creator that you've never heard of, but you instantly know, I'm going to be reading or following that motherfucker for a long time? Gregory Bateson is one of those people for me. One of the grand strands of my life's work is weaving the metaphor of nature with the processes of psyche. He got there first and he left a book, and it's called The Steps to an Ecology of Mind. He also proposed a novel explanation for schizophrenia, something that he called double binds. A double bind is a set of simultaneous messages that conflict with each other. Be spontaneous is a double bind. You can't command spontaneity. 
You must be free as a double bind. You can't force freedom. If a parent tells you, you're safe, just tell me the truth, but you can see their hand quivering, ready to hit you if you admit the truth, that's a double bind. The story that Bateson uses is the mother who goes to see her mentally ill 29-year-old. She says, I love you, honey, but the boy can tell with every fiber of his animal body that his mother thinks him disgusting. Each sweet nothing that she utters confuses the boy further. When we lie, we wound each other. Double binds are used in torture situations. Double binds twist the human soul. Alongside double blinds, there is a phenomenon that humans do all the time, and one of the words for it is blind spots. If you have the stomach for it, you should go check out the research that has been done in the field called behavioral economics. It is a baptism in human ignorance. Your psyche will go through titanic efforts to maintain two beliefs. One, that you are a good person. Two, that you are right. Our blind spots are a kind of internal censoring that we do to avoid noticing information that contradicts our two twin golden idols. I am a good person and I'm right. Have you ever noticed that when a friend spills the tea with you about their ex, that they're Disney princess innocent and that their ex is Jeffrey Dahmer evil? Or if you have a coworker who starts to tell you about drama at work, the person they're having the difficulty with, that person is clearly a sociopath. But the person telling you this story, they're clearly the Dalai Lama's greatest disciple. Blind spots. But the real blind spot is how hard it is for you to notice that you do this almost every time you talk about somebody else. What I want to talk today about is our double binds that live in our blind spot. The elephant in the room is gold. I've been going through something the past month, and I've been finding it hard to explain to people because it's about money, and everybody hates talking about money. Take a moment to write down the single sentence story that each of your parents had about money when you were a kid. For me, my mom's story was, anyone who makes enough money to not have to worry about money is a piece of shit. They have to exploit people and they're probably evil. My dad's story about money. If you work hard your entire life and live below your means and you save, you can retire and the goal of life is to retire. My synthesis of these two stories was a double bind. My story was never try to make money, just work harder than anybody and you will never have to worry about money. So don't try, but work really hard. In this blind spot of my double bind is a phenomenon called learned helplessness. If you haven't heard of this before, it is one of the insights in psychology that is most worth your time to learn. Learned helplessness is the discovery that intelligent animals can learn to become helpless. Helplessness essentially means they do not believe that any behavior is available to them that could improve their situation when there are behaviors that they could do that could improve their situation. Learn helplessness denatures our soul. For most of my life, I've related to money with the attitude of helplessness. 
Most of us in our culture have an attitude of learned helplessness towards money. Feeling helpless around money marinates us in resentment, and social media is where we feast on our resentment. Have you ever seen a social media account critique capitalism? Have you ever seen these accounts bundle capitalism with colonialism and patriarchy as the main causes for the destruction of the planet? Have you seen some of these accounts grow to hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers? Next time you see one, click on their profile, click on their links, go to their website. You will find that they have courses about how to heal from capitalism or they might offer one-on-one -on -one mentorship on how to decolonialize yourself. Get your credit card out. This is a double bind bound so tightly in their blind spot that it chokes their followers. We critique capitalism from our iPhones. We sit in a home that we did not build, wearing clothes that we did not stitch, eating food that we did not grow, sleeping on beds we did not make, being cooled by air conditioning that we did not invent, powered by electricity that we did not harness, drinking water from wells that we did not dig, and drive cars that we could never make on our own, even if we dedicated our entire lives to it. Anyone able to hear these words, and every follower of every account that makes a living poking at people's guilt, we live atop a universe of human creation brought to us by capitalism. The double bind of condemning capitalism is one, do not get good at playing the game of capitalism because it's bad. Two, deploy your full arsenal of cognitive dissonance to ignore that you are already playing the game and reaping the rewards of the game and that you have been doing so your entire life. And the outcome of this double bind is that you can only play the game badly and then you unconsciously feed the resentment of both yourself and everybody else. I don't know if it's a tragedy or if it's irony or if it's the perfection of the psyche, but that which we are condemning is the medicine that we seek. Because the essence of capitalism is reciprocity. In our guts, when someone does something for us, we feel a sense that we owe them a kindness in return. Learning to play the game of reciprocity will improve your life. If you orient your life towards giving gifts to people in the world and you make it easy for them to return that goodwill, AKA by paying you, you will make enough money to not have to worry about money because of capitalism. But before I go on about how playing this game of reciprocity can improve your life, I want to honor our wounds. Wound number one, the drug company archetype. This is the one that boils my blood. Nothing that I read makes me more angry than when I study the history of how pharmaceutical companies have lied, cheated, and defrauded us. Many of the top pharmaceutical companies are convicted criminal enterprises. They have paid billions of dollars in fines. In a hundred years, we will look back at this era of psychiatric medications the same way that we now look at lobotomies. The inventor of the lobotomy won a Nobel Prize for it in his day. It is a crime against humanity that we will write about in history books. These companies are monsters comprised of good people with blind spots. And it's true. Capitalism allows these monsters to ruin millions of lives. 
These monsters destroy people's consciousness. And you're going to hate this because here comes some nuance. These companies also produce medicines that help millions of people. Wound number two, the industrial agriculture archetype. We can safely join hands in our condemnation of this archetype. These monsters, made up by good people with blind spots, have campaigned for decades to make it as hard as possible for any farmer in the world they can influence to not be able to farm without their seeds. And their seeds are genetically altered to not be able to produce the following generation of seeds. So you have to buy more. What this industry has done to our planet is the stuff of nightmares for those who are prone to fear. And it is the stuff of vengeful fantasies for those who are prone to anger. Monocropping has degraded our soil. Fertilizers have fatally injured our rivers and our reefs and our watersheds. Millions of animals have been subjugated to gut-wrenching, torturous conditions. These monsters destroy our precious planet. It is true. Capitalism helps these monsters eat the planet. And you're going to hate this because here comes the nuance. These companies also feed people. If we stopped it all today, millions of people, the poorest of us, would die. Wound three, the Jeffrey Epstein archetype. The demon king himself, a man who raped and sex trafficked over 500 women, a man who used his money and his power to do whatever the fuck he wanted. The first time that he got caught, he was able to get a sweetheart deal that was unheard of in history for a case with as much evidence against him as his. No victim got to testify, and he got to leave the prison that he was in every day for eight hours and in 13 months he was free and continued to rape and sex traffic. This monster represents the class of monsters that get to live by a different code than the rest of us. Laws do not apply to them. With enough money, you can destroy others freely. And you're gonna hate this, because here comes nuance. He got caught. He got tried in court. He got sentenced. No amount of power and money was able to stop a few good men and women who knew what he did and did not give up. A few good men and women. When I was a kid, I was innocent. The world felt perfect. As a teenager, I was arrogant. I saw my first conspiracy documentary and I looked at anyone who was happy with their lives with resentment and judgment. But my blind spot was that I was asking my mom for money every month. When I graduated college, I survived my nihilism that almost took my life, and I chose to dedicate my life to making art to help this tragic world. While living in my blind spot was my helplessness around money. Now as a 32-year-old, feeling fatherhood on the horizon, I feel something new that makes my eyes water. I want to develop the competency to give my children a childhood where they can taste innocence, and that requires getting good at making money. I will do what is required. My arrogance has been tempered into audacity. The world is hurting. It needs help, and I'm going to help. The help that I'm able to produce will exponentially grow in proportion to my skill at the making money game. So I'm going to practice. 
As an artist, I've realized that it is part of my responsibility to my craft to learn how to play the game of money. I've begrudgingly allowed myself to understand that I can make money and be a good person. I've realized that if I give value to the world through my art, the world will respond. My soul will not be at peace if I do not make the art that is mine to make. So I'm going to learn how to play the game of money so that my art can flourish. The infinite game. Number one, does the world need help? Number two, do you believe that you can do something to help? If you answered yes to these two questions, you and I are on the same team. And thank you for being here because at times I feel lonely. So the next question is, how can we help? I think the best way to help is to radically and religiously connect to our artistic calling and to pair that divine dance with the cathedral building, the craftsman that lays a brick every day. I think the best way to help the world is to give it our art. And in order to give it our art, we have to create a temple to house it. Stone workers don't resent their materials. They learn from them and they work with them. Capitalism is one of our materials. Learning how to create and run a business is the brickwork that will house and support your dharma, your sacred task. Cultivating your connection to your soul will require you to build a cathedral to house it. And hopefully, some of you motherfuckers listening to this will have dharmas that will ask you to build big businesses because it will be those people who will reach the size large enough to start to confront the monsters that are already here playing the game, some of which I talked about earlier. Because the rest of us are hoping that someone else will face the monsters while we pretend to do our part critiquing, quote, the late stage capitalism of Burning Man or the colonialism of businesses that share spiritual wisdom. Two quotes I want to leave you with. The first one is by Steve Jobs. This is one of the last emails that he wrote before he died. Quote, I grow little of the food that I eat, and of the little that I do grow, I did not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language that I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws that I did not conceive of or legislate and that I do not enforce or adjudicate. I am moved by music that I did not create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I did not invent the transistor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology that I work with. I love and admire my species living and dead, and I am totally dependent on them for my life and my well-being. The next one is by Bernard Shaw. This is the true joy in life, to be used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it what I can. 
I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I have and have gotten to hold for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it to future generations. So the questions I leave you with are, what was your mom's story about money? What was your dad's story about money? What is your story about money? Do you have double binds around money? What are your blind spots? Does the world need help? Will you do something about it? P.S. If you disagree with me, email me. If you're respectful and you write in good faith, I'll respond. I want to see my blind spots. Do you agree with me? Email me. What is your money double bind? Or what was your money double bind? And when and how did you alchemize it? I love y'all. Thank you for listening.